So it's going to be Acts chapter 3, 17 to 26. For a sermon I've entitled Israel in the Plan of God. You should follow along as I read. This is uh, Peter talking to the people gathered in Jerusalem where he's charged them with their complicity in the murder of their Messiah. He says this, And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all those prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped out, or wiped away, in order that the time of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he might send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it shall be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward have announced these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your father's Abraham, father Abraham, saying, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from his wicked ways. Frederick the Great the king of Prussia during the late 1700s. He was once having a discussion with his chaplain regarding the truthfulness of the Bible. The king, who had become a skeptic of Christianity largely as a result of his friendship with Voltaire, the French rationalist, he said to the chaplain, he said, you know, if the Bible really is true, it ought to be capable of some very brief proof. So often when I ask for proof for the inspiration of the Bible, I've been given some enormous volume that I neither have the time nor the disposition to read. If the Bible really is the word of God, you should be able to demonstrate that fact simply. Forget about long arguments. Give me proof of the Bible's inspiration in a word. Well, the chaplain responded by saying, Your Majesty, it is possible for me to answer your request quite literally. I can give you proof in a single word. The king looked at him and said, What is this magic word that carries such a weight of proof? And the chaplain said, Israel, Your Majesty, Israel. What did he mean by that? I think what he meant was that apart from the God of the Bible existing, it's impossible to explain the continued survival of the Jews. I mean, think about it. Israel is a small country situated between world-dominating powers that was once enslaved by Egypt and then later subjugated in turn by Assyria, the Babylonians, and the Persians. And over their long history, there's been murderous villains who tried to wipe out the Jews completely. Haman in Esther's day, Antiochus Epiphany in the time of the Maccabees, Hitler in modern times. The Romans waged three wars against the Jews. They destroyed the temple in 70 AD, put down another rebellion in 115 AD, and yet one more time in 132. That last time, what was known as the Bar Kokhba Rebellion, was so devastating and the death count so extensive that Dio Cassio says this about it. 50 of their most important outposts and 985 of their most Famous villages were razed to the ground. 580,000 men were slain in various raids and battles, and the number of those who perished by famine, disease, and fire was past finding out. Thus, the whole Judea of Judea was made desolate. It's estimated that some 100,000 Jews were sold into slavery. It so glutted the slave market in Alexandria that you could buy a slave for less than what you would pay for a horse. Well, after that time, the emperor Hadrian 
put forth a number of edicts designed to root out Judean nationalism. He executed Jewish scholars, he burned copies of the Torah, and he uh, erected a statue of Zeus and one of himself at the Temple Mount. He eventually changed, uh, or even changed the name of the country from Judea to Palestine. Thus began the long exile of the Jews from their land. And how did they fare during that exile? Well, they were hated and hounded in nearly every land in which they were settled. They were expelled from Alexandria, Egypt, in 415, from England in 1290. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, but during that same time, at that same year, Queen uh, Isabella and King Ferdinand expelled all the Jews from Spain. They've been forced out of various countries in a number of times. Portugal, Switzerland, Austria twice, from Bavaria. They're not only expelled from European countries, but even from some Middle Eastern countries. They were expelled from Yemen in 1679. They were even pushed out of the country of Haiti. I mean, who gets pushed out of Haiti? Of course, in some countries, they didn't kick them out. They instead tried to do them in. The pogroms in Russia, the Holocaust in Germany. Six million died in the death camps. Did you know that even when it became obvious that the Germans were going to lose the war, they ramped up the execution and extermination of the Jews? The Jews have been hated and hounded, persecuted and abused, victimized and tyrannized, often had their wealth despoiled from them and had to pay fines just for the fact that they were Jewish. And yet, despite the millennia of opposition and the centuries of persecution, the Jews are still with us. And even more amazingly, after 1,800 years of exile, they went back, many of them, to the land to reestablish the modern state of Israel in 1948. Nothing like that has ever been seen in history before. You want evidence that the God of the Bible is the true God and that the Bible is his word? Israel, your majesty, Israel. The only explanation for the continued existence of the Jews is the fact that they are God's chosen people and despite their rejection of Jesus as their Messiah, God has preserved them as a people because he's not done with them yet. Israel and the plan of God. That's what we want to think about today. But before we do, we want to pray and ask for God's grace. Our Father God, I do pray for grace and mercy. This has a lot to do with your overall plan of salvation and how you work it out through history. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us uh, an understanding of this, a bird's eye view, so that when we come to the scripture, we can see what you're doing in the pages of scripture, but also what you're doing in history even today. So bless us to that end. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned, I already preached through this text, so I'm not going to do an exposition of these verses, but rather use it as a starting point for thinking about God's plan for national Israel. Uh, in this passage, Peter was confronting uh, his countrymen regarding the rejection of the, Jesus as their Messiah. And despite the fact that they had blood in their hands and the part that they played in regard to Jesus' crucifixion, Peter tells them that all this was part of God's plan to bring about forgiveness through the death of Jesus as a sacrifice for sins. By his death, Jesus paid the penalty for the sins of anyone who trusts in him. And so Peter holds out to them an offer of forgiveness for his countrymen, reminding them, as it says in verse 5, it says, And you who are the sons, or verse 25, And you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, In you and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. For you first, God has raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Romans 1.16 says that the, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. But why? Why is it to the Jew first? And this is your first point. Because Israel 
is a promised or is a chosen nation because Israel was chosen by God. Have you ever heard the phrase American exceptionalism? It's the idea that the United States is a unique country unlike any other and therefore it has a special role to play in history. Now even before we became a nation, those who came to settle here had some concept of that. John Winthrop spoke of the hope that this country that they were settling in would be a shining city on a hill. Abraham Lincoln, in his Gettysburg Address, said that Americans have a responsibility to make sure that government is of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not uh, perish from the earth. Now, it is certainly true that God raised up the United States as a nation for his own purposes, but that's true of all nations. Paul told the philosophers in Athens that God has made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Acts 17, 26. As Daniel said, it is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. It might be true that America is in some sense a special nation, but there's only one country that's called the chosen nation. Speaking of the people of Israel, God says in Amos 3, 2, you only have I chosen from all the families of the earth. And while God works through many nations to accomplish his will, there's only one nation as a nation that God has chosen. Israel, your majesty, Israel. God's plan has always been to bring salvation to all nations. But he initiated that plan by choosing one man through whose, li whose line he would bring blessings to the whole earth. It says in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse the one who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God appeared to him later when he was still a childless man at 75 years of age. And he told him that he would soon have a son who would be an heir. And then God took him outside and said, Now look to, towards the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said, So shall your descendants be. Then Abraham believed the Lord, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Well, from Abraham came Isaac, and from Isaac, Jacob, who God changed his name to Israel. To Israel were born 12 sons who became the 12 heads of the 12 tribes. The people moved down to Egypt and later were enslaved by Pharaoh. But God delivered the children of Israel from bondage by destroying Egypt with 10 plagues. He then brought them into the wilderness and entered into a covenant with them on Mount Sinai, and he gave them his law, his Ten Commandments. Now, it's interesting that the Jewish rabbis, some of them, argue that all the nations were actually offered the law of Moses, but only Israel accepted it. But clearly, that's not the case. It was given to Israel and Israel alone. And God did not choose uh, the descendants of Jacob because they had some uh, greater significance or were superior morally. Speaking to Moses, uh, the, or the people through Moses, he said this, The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more numerous, than other people, for you are the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant, his love and kindness to a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments, but repays those who hate him to their faces and destroys them. He will not delay with uh, those he, uh, who hate him, he will repay them to their face. Therefore, you shall keep his commandments and statutes and judgments, which I am commanding you today to do them. Deuteronomy 7, 7 to 11. But did they keep his commandments? 
I mean, God was faithful to them, but were they faithful to him? No, I mean, read through the Old Testament. What do you have? You have a record of failure and sin. God told the people when they entered the land that he wasn't giving them the land because they were righteous, but because the inhabitants of the land were so wicked, because they were so steeped in sexual sins and perversions, just like America today. Transgenderism is nothing new. But God also warned them, and if they ever became like these wicked Canaanites, he would throw them out of the land as well. And of course, that's just what they did. Their land was filled with idolatry, leading to sexual debauchery, leading to increased corruption and violence. And so God sent the Babylonians against the people. Seventy years later, God graciously brought them back into the land, but they went back to their sins and wicked ways. The record of Israel's history is one of long moral declines occasionally punctuated by spiritual revivals. But when he arrived, or over those centuries, Jews were looking forward, faithful Jews, to the coming of the Messiah who would redeem Israel and bring in righteousness. The Messiah, they believed, would come as a victorious warrior and a conquering king, just as the prophets proclaimed. But what happened when he arrived? He wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a stable, clothed not in royal robes, but strips of swaddling cloth. Those peering over his cradle were not dignitaries from Rome and Alexandria, but poor shepherds from the fields of Judea. And rather than growing up in Jerusalem, being trained by the top rabbis of the day, he grew up in a podoc town called Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? But when Jesus began his public ministry, the people were impressed. I mean, he spoke like one who had authority. He was demonstrating miraculous powers. Rightly did the people say once after he cast out a demon, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel before. I'm mean, sure there was growing opposition coming from the religious leaders, but the common folk heard him gladly as he ministered to them for three years. But then a few months before Jesus entered Jerusalem for the last time, he sent out his disciples to the towns and villages with these instructions. He said, do not go to the Gentiles, nor enter any city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, freely you have received, freely you have given. And then Jesus went on to say this, whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words, as you go out of the house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in that day of judgment than for that city. As the chosen people, the gospel needed first to go to Israel. Later, he would call on his disciples to go out into all the nations. But at this point, the focus was on the Jews. Well, what happened? Well, some believed, but most did not. And that crescendo of unbelief reached its loudest volume when the crowds gathered before Pilate and demanded that Jesus be crucified. That's what Peter is indicting these listeners for in a sermon. Israel was a chosen nation who had demanded that their Messiah, the king, be crucified. So Israel was a chosen nation. But the second point is this, which at present has been set aside. Now Peter made it clear in his sermon that despite the fact that his listeners had blood on their hands for their part they played in the crucifixion of Jesus, God was more than willing to forgive them if they would now just trust in this crucified and resurrected Savior. All of it all of them played a part in it. Judas, the religious leaders, Pilate, Herod. And yet, Peter tells them that it all happened according to God's predetermined plan. Now, having accomplished redemption through Jesus, 
He was commanding the people, urging the people to repent of their wicked ways and receive forgiveness and reconciliation through faith in the now resurrected Christ. Like I said, most of them wouldn't and didn't. Rather than believe the gospel, some of them became sworn enemies of the gospel. I mean, read through the book of Acts. What do you find? The greatest opposition to the spread of the gospel comes from Jews, the people of Israel. We read about how they stirred up opposition against Paul in one city after another so that the Gentiles wouldn't listen. But nevertheless, the Gentiles did listen. And indeed, a large number of them came to faith. And so what happened? Over time, the church, which had started being almost exclusively Jewish, became more and more Gentile in its makeup. Remember, Jesus actually told a parable explaining how this would happen. He talked about the rented vineyard. If you recall in it, there was a landlord who rented out his vineyard to some tenant farmers with the understanding that they would give him a share of the crops at the end of the season. When the harvest time came, he sent servants to collect the money. But the vine growers took his slave, beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. So he sent another group, but they did the same. Finally, he sent his son, thinking, you know, they'll respect my son. But we read, but when the vine growers saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Now, obviously, the the vineyard represents the nation of Israel. The landowner represents God. The servants are the prophets that God had sent to Israel over the centuries. The tenant farmers are the religious leaders who would kill the son, would be Jesus. And after telling him this story, Jesus then asked, when the vineyard, uh, when the uh, owner of the vineyard comes, what do you think he'll do to those vine growers? And the religious leaders got sucked into the story, said, he will bring those wretched men to a wretched end, and he'll rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper season. And then Jesus pulls a hook. He says, did you not read the stone which was rejected by the builders has become the chief cornerstone? It came about from the Lord, and it was marvelous in our sight. Jesus is the stone, the choice stone which was rejected by them, the builders. And then he goes on to say this, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whoever this stone falls, they will be scattered like dust. So the kingdom of God would be taken away from Israel and given to the Gentiles and the church who will produce the fruit of righteousness. And of course, we as Gentile Christians certainly don't deserve any of this grace. We stand in awe of the fact that we've received mercy and grace from the God of Israel while most of Israel has yet to experience this grace. That's the truth which lies behind Peter's words about the Gentiles in his first letter when he writes this, And coming to him as living stones, as a living stone which has been rejected by men, Jesus the living stone, but a choice and precious in the sight of God, you also are living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture, and he quotes from the Old Testament, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious stone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they're disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you, you Gentiles in the church, 
are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Listen to this. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And that's where it stood and still stands over the last 20 centuries. Even though Israel is the chosen nation and the Jews the chosen people, only a small fraction of them over those last 2,000 years have embraced Jesus as their Messiah so as to be saved. One of the books I have in my library is by Rabbi David Klinghoffer. It's entitled, Why the Jews Rejected Jesus. The rabbi gives a number of reasons, both theological and historical, uh, why the Jews in the past and even today do not accept Jesus as their Messiah. But he doesn't give the reasons that Paul gives for it. You see, from a human standpoint, the primary reason the Jews have in the past and still do reject Jesus is because they think salvation is something that you achieve rather than a gift that you receive. And by the way, that's true of every other religion but Christianity. Speaking of his countrymen, in Romans 9.10, or 9.30 to 10.4, Paul says this, What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even a righteousness that's by faith. But Israel, pursuing righteousness, did not arrive at that law. A law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it's written. Behold, I have laid in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and he who believes it will not be disappointed. Listen to what he says. Brethren, my heart's desire, my prayer, is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in according to knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end or the goal or the telos of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So listen carefully. You need to have a perfect righteousness to stand before God on judgment day. That is a perfect record of conformity to his will as expressed by his law. But the problem is, is that you and I have broken his commandments time and time again. And whatever righteous deeds we have done cannot make up for what we've failed to do. That's why the Bible tells us there's none righteous, no, not one. And that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The only exception is Jesus, who lived a perfectly righteous life. And when a person believes on Jesus as a sacrifice for the sins, God takes his punishment in place of yours. And then God credits his righteousness, his record of law-keeping, to the sinner's account so that you can stand before God, not in your own righteousness, but in that of Christ. And that's why he's the goal of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. If you're trusting in something you've done, rather than what Christ has done for your salvation, you're going to perish. You can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And quite honestly, who in America is even trying? I mean, our country is going to hell in a handbasket. And nobody stops to think that God's concerned about this. Who's crying out saying, what shall I do to be saved? You know, I'm betting that people partied and had a good time to the day before the flood came. Jesus said they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day the flood came and took them all away. And they were completely unaware. 
So rather than believe in their Messiah, Israel stumbled over him like the prophets predicted they would. And it's, the verse quoted from Peter said, for they stumbled for their disobedient to the word, but listen to this next line, and to that doom they were appointed. Well, that brings us to our last point, which is someday they will be redeemed. But someday they will be redeemed. I mean, is this the end of the story for the Jews? Has Israel been cast off by God forever? The church father Augustine thought so. He said the only reason God preserved the Jews after they rejected Jesus was to have an example of what happens to people in judgment and unbelief. There are Christian theologians today who argue uh, that the church has superseded or replaced Israel. They say, sure, Jews can be saved individually by becoming Christians, but there's no future for Israel as a nation. Israel has rejected Jesus, so God has rejected Israel forever. Has God rejected his people? Paul says, may it never be. In chapters 9 to 11 in Romans, Paul argues that God has not rejected his people. He has not gone back on his word because not all the people who descended from Abraham were actually the people of God, but only those he had chosen. And Paul said even in our day when most of them have rejected the Messiah, he said there's people like me, God's always kept a remnant, who believe. And over the centuries, though they've been a small number of people, there have always been some Jewish people who've embraced Jesus as their Messiah so as to be saved. And during these 20 centuries where the majority of people of Israel rejected Jesus, God has been bringing Gentiles into the church to become worshipers of Israel's God. That also was part of God's plan. He says this in Romans, he says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, and so all Israel will be saved. Just as it's written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I remove their sins. And then Paul says this, from the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Israel is the chosen nation, which has been set aside at this present age because of their unbelief. But when Jesus returns to rescue them from their enemies, they will recognize their mistake. God, speaking through the prophet Zechariah, said this, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they've pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. Now, honestly, to do justice to this theme, I would have to do a whole Sunday school class lasting 10 to 12 weeks. This is just a bird's eye view of it. But I think we need to make a proper response even to what we've learned today. And here's the first of our responses. We should marvel, marvel at the grace of God. For the grace shown to us now as Gentiles, I mean, your ancestors worshiped trees and rocks. So did mine. But also marvel at the grace that God's going to show the Jews, you know, he's actually going to rescue them from total annihilation by the Antichrist after they've entered into a covenant agreement with him. Amazing. Here's a second response. Pray for the Jews and the nation of Israel. You know, there's always been a stream of true believers among a people of Israel who don't believe. But there's been times when that stream's been wider and times when that stream's been narrower. Shouldn't we as Gentiles who've received the grace that came from Israel's God pray for these people? There's a reason we have 
Jewish congregations listed in our bulletin every week. Pray for the Jews and the nation of Israel. The last thing, though, is bank on the faithfulness of God in your own lives. I mean, God keeps all of his promises. He's going to keep his promises to Israel. He is keeping his promises to the church. And he will keep his promises to you if you look to him for the answers that you need. God is good. God is faithful. God is true. And he will accomplish his will and his plan for Israel, for the church, and for your life. All you got to do is trust him. That's it. Let's pray. Our Father and God, that's what's hard, though, is trusting you. A lot of times we'll trust in anything but you. Our money, our skills, our talents. Countries trust in their military capacities. And yet all those things have been shown to fail at times. The only one who doesn't fail is you. And so, Father and God, I pray that you'd give us grace to trust in you and your providence. But even more than that, to trust in your Son and what he's done for our salvation. Because apart from trusting in Jesus' death as the payment for our sins, we will perish. And so, Father and God, I pray for grace and mercy. Open up hearts and minds. We pray that the gospel will go forward and people will be saved. And many of them will come from among the Jews yet. So bless us now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.